Anyway, sorry, I've forgotten what your question was, Drodo. When he went in, went out the other. Yeah, that was an awesome question, obviously. It was. I remember being impressed, yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One of the best bits of advice I've ever received was to find good mentors and to learn from them. Trusted people who have already done what you're trying to do now. I've been fortunate throughout my career to have some fantastic mentors to help guide me, but I realized that they'd be hard to find and also hard to commit the time to one. This is why we've gathered some of the best minds from the veterinary world and squeezed them for their wisdom so that you don't have to learn the hard way. With the help of our guests, we flip the veterinary profession on its back and explore its soft underbelly to find the tips, tools, and inspiration that you'll need to build the career that you've always wanted. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Hello, Vet Vault listeners, and welcome back to another episode. Today we tackle a subject that is not necessarily directly veterinary related or is at least not limited to our profession, but it's one that is a critical topic to talk about because of the impact that it will have on all of us and more importantly because of the impact that we can have on it as veterinarians. We're talking about climate change. If you've ever found yourself looking around your workplace thinking to yourself, shit, this can't be good for the environment. I really should be doing something about it. Or if you are concerned about climate change, but you're not quite sure where to start, then this episode is for you. We're speaking to Ben Cox, a founder and a driving force behind an exciting new charity called Veterinarians for Climate Action. Ben comes from a sustainability, engineering and business background and is incredibly passionate about climate change because of the impact it will have on future generations and the natural environment. So he helped to start Veterinarians for Climate Action as his tool for taking action and inspiring others to do so. VFCA's mission statement is to inspire the veterinary profession to advocate for and achieve climate action within and beyond our industry. This will benefit both our profession and the animals we care for, ensuring a sustainable future for all. In this episode, Ben explains to us why we as vets are important in this arena and how we can be particularly valuable and have a big impact in the push for action on climate change. We talk about what they are doing through the charity and what we can do, including how to have conversations about climate change, what influences the public's opinion on the matter and how to change it, and what we can do on a practical level in our businesses. Ben is practical, pragmatic and hopeful and definitely someone who you can put your support behind. Please enjoy Ben Cox and help us make a change. Welcome everyone to our this episode of the Vet Vault and today we have an awesome guest on really interesting topic as well is the guest today is Ben Cox and he is from the the organization Vets for Climate Change. Thank you very much for coming on Ben. Thank you very much, Gerardo, and thanks for having me. And I'll introduce my co-host, Hubert, who never introduces me in these um, podcasts, but Hubert is here as well. You talk about yourself enough, I don't need to talk about you, Gerardo. <laughs> 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 Hi, Good to be back, and welcome, Ben. Thank you. So we, we just, in our, in our pre-episode chit-chat, we just established um, something I didn't know. Ben is actually not a veterinarian. Uh, that, that is he, correct. He, I'm an imposter. <laughs> yes. No, um, a guest, a guest to the, to the profession. Yes. Um, That's a good way of putting it. I like that. Give us a, give us a rundown, Ben. How, how, did you be, how did you become a guest in the veterinary profession? You said you, are, you have an engineering background. So how do we go from engineer to climate change activist uh, dealing with veterinarians? That is a, I could talk for hours about this, but I'll try and keep it short for you. <laughs> so my story is I've um, grown up in, a, in the Yarra Valley in Victoria, uh, and my family's always been really into outdoors. So we go camping for holidays. Uh, we, I've spent a lot of time in, still do spend a lot of time hiking. Um, I love mountain biking, and I really have that connection to nature. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably 
a little bit unusual amongst certainly people I know that I love wildlife. So I see a monitor lizard up here in Brisbane climbing up a tree and I stop, slam on the brakes of my bike and stop and watch it for five minutes. Or I love seeing a koala and hearing kookaburras in the morning just makes me happy. And my one of my worldviews is that I feel that Australia needs to, one of the responsibilities we have is to protect these wild places in and for themselves. And so I've always been a bit of a numbers nerd. Um, maths has come easily to me. Uh, so I went to university, did engineering, um, came out and tried to find a job in sustainability. So it took me a few years, but essentially I spent the last decade of my life working in uh, working for a firm in Melbourne who specialised in sustainable building design. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we're real experts in how to design a sustainable building. This ranges everything from the where you source the wood products to number of bike parks to uh, the location of the building in regards to public transport. And we also specialise in teaching businesses how to be more sustainable in their everyday operations. This is how to like, change the culture of, around recycling, like really simple stuff to like, how do you actually get your staff to turn off lights and what, and what if you do that, what, how do you implement that, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But the last couple of years, I started to realise that there's really a limit to what you can achieve as an engineer when effectively you're working for customers who are paying for your services. Uh, and I've been learning slowly and slowly, learning more and more about climate change in the background. And it's reached a point to me that I'm really kind of feeling that this is something that it's becoming a really big problem. Um, and I don't think Australia's addressing it with, with the urgency that we perhaps need to. And the one that really gets me is the Great Barrier Reef. So Australia's already warmed by one degree. And as far as I can tell, it's all but inevitable that we're going to get to two degrees or the best part thereof. Uh, and at two degrees, the Great Barrier Reef doesn't exist anymore, largely. It's certainly not in the form we know it at the moment. And one of my personal real fears is that my social media feed in 20 or 30 or 40 years' time is going to pop up and tell me that, that, that the last remnants of the Great Barrier Reef have bleached. And mm. that's, that's such a failing of the system. Uh, and that really saddens me. And that is... The Great Barrier Reef is actually a wonder of the world and we're destroying it, not intentionally, but yeah. regardless, we are destroying it. Uh, so that I took some long service leave early last year um, and these type of things are playing around in the back of my head. And coincidentally, my wife works in the vet industry, has for years and years and years. Uh, and she knew a woman called Jeanette Kessels up here in Brisbane um, who had been challenged to say, well, What's the, veterinary industry, what's the veterinary industry doing about climate change? Mm-hmm. And as you'd expect, Jeanette was pretty stumped by this question, but she put out a few feelers and there was a Facebook post put up on one of the Facebook veterinary Facebook groups back in August, September last year. Uh, and I found myself a part of that group of people um, trying to work out what could the veterinary industry do about climate change. And we've been working for the last couple of months um, trying to answer that question and then trying to uh, trying to essentially set up a charity called Vets for Climate Action, which addresses this exact issue. Brilliant. Wow. Wow. When you were explaining before about, you know, your social media feed and then all of a sudden, you know, this, it, the, the, the reality in 10, 20 years' time is that, you know, what we had is gone, uh, really struck home for me, actually, and, and kind of like really hurt. Um, and it reminded me of a um, Alex and I being involved, and more so Alex being involved in uh, raising awareness for around the impact of the fires and koalas. And like, and there's heaps of you know, like people now that have jumped in on board now to 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 raise funds for that. And um, one of the things that really hit home for me was a quote that the Port Stevens koala, um, it's like the CEO of that of that organisation, said was that what kind of a country are we? when we can't even save one of our most iconic species. It's like almost like the same as what kind of country are we if we can't even save one of our most iconic wonders of the world? I know it's, it's frustrating, but they're very, it's very easy to get caught up in statements that simplify a very complex problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one, like obviously like we should reduce our carbon emissions. I don't think you'll find many people in Australia who don't agree with that, but mm-hmm. I can't afford an electric car, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's the, res, the policy responses and how we address this are very complicated. So if you look at the Great Barrier Reef, for example, 
the change that would have to happen in Australia and the world to stop that damage is very, very disruptive. Uh, it's certainly possible, and that's one of the messages we want to push out, is that these are not insurmountable mountains. It actually, there's a lot of opportunity in this change, but it's a significant change. <laughs> It's a, I'd, I'd hate to, I'd hate to, to ask you, you know, what would be your ten-step process to saving the relief, mate? Well, and I don't, I don't mean to as a joke, no, no, but it's, it's, but it's no, almost it's like question. it's almost like it's such a big problem. Like maybe step one could be like as big as like reduce CO two emissions. Step two would be so that would be step five maybe, and step one might be implement policy. It's like it's such a big problem, no one even knows where to start. And I, the reason why I thought of that was to be like I don't even know where to start. You know? It's it's a good question, and our organisation has been grappling with that for a long time, and we certainly don't have the answers to that, but we, we think we can help out as best we can. So for essentially Great Barrier Reef is in a real trouble if we get to two degrees, and that's driven by anthropogenic CO2 emissions. So how do you solve CO2? Like It's not just an Australia problem, it's a world problem. That when you study or you look at the politics of the treaties and the agreements and the Paris Agreement in particular, there's only half a dozen countries in the world that are really holding back quite aggressive progress on reducing the world's carbon emissions. Certainly, all of Europe is absolutely on board with this. A lot of other countries are. Um, and the sixth ones are holding up are countries like America at the moment. Um, Brazil has got a new president that's a little bit not on board with the climate change message. Um, and Australia is one of these countries. And I'm optimistic that... If Australia becomes one of the, the doing countries instead of the don't countries, mm -hmm. uh, that can have a real political change across the whole world. And you also got to remember Australia is one of the G20 group. Like we have one of the 20th biggest economies in the world, which means we have huge diplomatic clout. So if our politicians believe in this cause and they push it, then that has definitive impacts on the rest of the world. And it starts to address things like my fear on the Great Barrier Reef. So then we go back to, well, how do we change Australian politics? And a lot of the people I talk to, because we obviously attract people who are left-leaning, they say, oh, we have to get rid of Morrison. He's horrible. He's, um, he's a terrible person for the climate. He's doing all this damage. But history has shown that the countries that are successful in addressing climate change are those that have bipartisan support. So getting rid of Morrison and the Liberal Party is very short-termist. And we've seen that when Tony Abbott came in after the Rudd-Gillard years, he dismantled an awful lot of the policy around carbon emissions reductions that were put in place. So for better or worse, Australia needs to work with the Liberals and the national groups and parties to get them to recognise and act on this change, which is a very difficult thing to do. And so I was a while ago I was talking to a friend who works at, um, in the activist space and said something that really struck with me, and it was that we don't have a house of leaders, we have a house of representatives. Mm -hmm. And I took that home, and it rattled around in the back of my head for a while, and I'm like, oh, that's so obvious. <laughs> and it never occurred to me, because when I think of political leaders, I think of like Bob Hawke or Barack Obama, who are just these visionary people who move a country from one spot to the other. But I haven't seen that in Australia for a long time, um, and I feel that what we actually have is politicians who are following a in polls to a large degree to make yeah. sure they get re-elected. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is my issue when I, when I see people, especially after the fires, you see the the public outcry and the politicians aren't doing it, and that Scott's that Scomo's fault, and then I then I look at it and go, yeah, but last year we had an election and they were not hiding the fact that they didn't have strong climate policies. Well, actually, in most of the parties, actually didn't, and we've we voted for them as a country. So now suddenly you say, well, it's their fault. You go, well, you... who did you vote is for? It, <laughs> is it a little bit my fault? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because because right now we want, we're short-sighted and, and I'll include myself in that because right now I want to pay less ta fewer taxes and I want to drive my 404 and I want to do this and this and this and this. So I want, I want what I want, but I also want you to fix climate change, but I don't want to do anything about it. Well, and it's also, like, you can't blame people for having the beliefs they have on climate change. Like, they didn't go out to, they didn't intentionally form the beliefs they have. They're a product of their environment and the people they surround themselves and where they work. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 
I spent a lot of my career working with people who are very keen on sustainability, but my friend, engineering friends have gone into mining. They have very different worldviews to me a decade yeah. later. Yeah. I can't blame them for that. Mm. They're not a bad person, but they, they just have different views on these things and they're a product of what media they read and all these other things. So, yeah, so we've been trying to answer like, how do we change Australia, how Australia votes on climate change. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of research into what Australians think about climate change and effectively they follow a similar system to American researchers um, where they break Australian opinions down into six subcategories and it goes from alarmed, which is me, cautious, which is probably most of the people, a lot of the veterinary industry, I suspect, I have no evidence for that, but that's my personal suspicion. Mm-hmm. And those two categories are about half of Australia. There's a bit in the middle that are disengaged or they just don't really care about this thing. Um, and then there's people who are doubtful and then there's about 12% of Australia who are deniers. Okay. So how do you shift that group from the denier end, just move them across one category towards the alarmist end and mm. that then moves votes in my yeah. opinion. So what's the answer? I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a practical a real life example of why I'm asking this question. A, a good friend of mine who is a, as you say, a reasonable, intelligent person, but he's unconvinced. And and we sit around over beers at a barbecue and I want to strangle him <laughs> because we have these discussions. Because why won't you listen to me? Uh, how how do you shift that opinion? How, how do you take somebody from, he's not a denier, but he's, not, he's like, nah, he's not convinced. Uh, are there yeah. are there resources that you point people to? There's a stack. There's obviously heaps, and I'm working pretty closely with groups like the Australian Conservation Foundation, CANA, which is the Climate Action Network Australia group. Um, I'll catch up tomorrow with someone from Tipping Point, who's a really um, important organisation. This, and I've had chats with the Climate Council, and the picture I get from all that is that they're all very, very expert in communication. They understand how to talk to people in a way that reaches them. So I'm an engineer, you guys are scientists. If I want to talk to you, I show you a graph and figures and I send you a technical paper and that is enough, is likely to be enough to change your opinion. But that probably only works if I'm talking to you on something technical and it doesn't work on other things. And so for example of this is I've been reading Bureau of Meteorology reports on the climate and the Bureau of Meteorology are pretty confident that when the world warms by one degree, Australia is pretty much going to raise by one degree. There's not a lot of, it's not like some bits are going to raise by two and other bits are going to raise by nothing. Mm. Uh, but they're less confident with the rainfalls. And I find myself, so because they're inherently harder to model, is what happens to the changes in rainfall patterns. And I found myself looking at these numbers and not believing them because they just didn't fit what I'd assumed. So, for example, worst case scenario, I think Perth's going to have something like 25% rainfall by year, 25% less rainfall by year 2100, which is pretty significant. Yeah, it's a big number. And we, and we, don't, have um, a, and we don't have a lot as it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think you've already seen a 10% long-term reduction, but don't quote me on that figure. Um, it, it is all on the Bureau of Meteorology website. They have um, a report called State of the Climate and then a few other reports talking about how local areas are predicted to change. But anyway, the rainfall things, I'm looking at it and I'm not believing some of the numbers because I'd assumed all of Australia was getting drier and the reports are actually saying that where I'm kind of live around Brisbane is getting a little bit wetter mm-hmm. and where my parents are in Melbourne it's only getting drier by nothing it doesn't have any impact and to me I believe climate change destroys everything and so these numbers I'm seeing don't align with my worldview that climate change is this horrible thing and so I'm not accepting them I'm not believing them and I didn't even you don't even realize you do this until a couple of months later I watched a video by the Bureau of Meteorology explaining how they know and how they can predict this and I was like ah oh. and that's when you change your mind so it happens to all of us that you'll reject information that you otherwise you reject factual information because it doesn't fit with your preconceived preconceived views yeah and so what all the climate groups and what we're trying to do is teach people about this and teach how to communicate to people so for example if you're talking to a like we don't encourage people to try and talk to full-on climate deniers. There's not a lot of point in that. Hmm. Uh, they're so far removed that there's not a lot to gain and all you end up do is moving them from denier to doubtful, which is still not going to actually cause political change. 
But when you're talking to someone who's uh, a little bit dismissive of climate change, who's like kind of, oh, yeah, whatever, that, is, that doesn't impact me. If you use words like climate emergency, that doesn't resonate. That puts people off straight away. Yeah, like, well, yeah. it's not an emergency. You're being, you're being alarmist. Yeah. But if you look at the cautious group, if you use the climate emergency, it's quite powerful. But I think that type of language actually moved me from being cautious to being alarmed. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting learning how to communicate and the language that's used. And this is all very new to me as an engineer, but um, it's effectively what we're trying to teach people within the veterinary industry is how to how to change that people's opinion on it. So what what do you guys think of that? Is that new or? Mm-hmm. No, I, I I like um, it it puts it gels with stuff I'm learning about human psychology in in our field and in other field is exactly that that us as humans do that we selectively hear and and if it doesn't fit with what we want to believe then we even if it's about ourselves most people go nah it's not true uh, instead of looking at the facts we love looking at the at the emotions involved um, and then do you see that with your customers a lot. Yeah, yeah, customers, co-workers, wives. <laughs> Shara, do you agree? Um, I'll look at the, the thing that actually uh, somewhat really kind of struck me home, Ben, was that you're tackling things that I, that I, that I generally tackle as a hospital director, and that's moving people through the rooms of change. Like... So moving them from the contentment stage where they're like, you know, life's good. You know, why do I have to worry about it to, ah, look, you know, you, you're alarming me for no reason. It's not actually happening. So all of a sudden it's like, you know, shit, this is happening, but is it really happening? I don't know. It's like infusion stage into the, and then they sit and bounce around that for a while. And then you've got to get into the renewal phase where they're actually like, you know, actually like we could do this and this is actually something we need to make a change on. And, and the other thing which actually really struck home here is that as businesses like big businesses um there is the need it's almost like you, you can't just have a good um place for your um staff to work and you um you, you can't just have like a, a good outcome for the clients and so forth there's more to it now it's almost like the, the fourth step down where people actually are looking at your company and look at you they look at your company about what kind of like sustainable or what kind of like change or what kind of thing that you that you take on as a company to embrace like um, like a climate change or something like that. And we've had discussions uh, recently about how, how, you know, what could we tackle and what we could do to um, help our company transition into something that's been more sustainable. Mm-hmm. You'd like, you know, you believe the amount of wastage we go through with regards to recyclables and stuff because of human waste, like not human waste, um, animal waste on it and so forth and plastic for syringes like thousands and thousands of syringes a year. Um, and what I, I suppose um, would like to, 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 to see if we can direct the conversation and, and know is, you know, what, what, what are the things that you've um, come across at a clinic level that, um, you know, small practices could take on which can increase their level of sustainability? Because I know that, my local hairdresser just got awarded as um, sustainable hairdresser. Like they got, they can actually get accreditation. Oh, sustainable salons. Yeah, sustainable salons and things. Yeah. yeah, some of our people just had a chat to them recently to see how they run and what we can learn from them. They um they run such a tight ship. They're really impressive. Mm. I mean, imagine the chemicals they use. You know, like washing hair and soaps and suds and bleaches and all that kind yep. of stuff. Like transitioning to environmentally friendly biodegradable products where. Mm, yeah. So I have other mixed opinions on whether I've, like I've obviously come in as an outsider to the veterinary industry and I see two sides to it. On one side, there are some genuinely amazing people and clinics out there that are going that are doing, if not world best practice, certainly best practice in Australia. Um, and there's examples of that. There's certainly in the UK there's a lot of groups that are picking this up. But what I haven't seen is an overarching movement for everyone to become more sustainable it's a little bit ad hoc there's it isn't really centered at the moment there's no agreed methodology there's no rating systems uh people are kind of just jumping on google and talking to their friends and doing what they think's best which is good but it doesn't implement there's you know there's 2000 vet businesses um and five percent doing the best thing doesn't actually have a, a big impact as it could 
So one of the things we're trying to do is address that. Uh, so obviously I have a background in sustainability and some of the people we've attracted to sit on our board and our subcommittees are superstars at this. They're just amazing. So we're trying to pick up a lot of that. Uh, so we're creating a... It needs actually. I'll get you guys to help me brainstorm a name for it. We're currently calling it the twelve-month hospital sustainability program, which really doesn't have a ring to it. <laughs> We're thinking of calling it Paw Prints, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's copyrighted. I, I do on I do marketing all the time, and um, yeah. oh, good. Can we even do you as well? <laughs> uh, but but it, those things are the kind of things we need to take a shower. That's that that you need theater brainwaves for that. I know. I've been doing. We first started decided to rename it about two or three weeks ago and nothing's just popped yet so I'm, I'm asking so so what are we looking for for a, for a name for an accreditation system for, uh, for so at the moment it's not an accreditation system i'm pretty familiar with a whole bunch of accreditation systems for sustainability mm. and in my opinion they either end up being amazingly rigorous and, and you achieve real things um but the compliance costs are very high or they go the opposite, which is kind of like the house energy rating schemes where it's so easy to meet and get six stars that effectively does nothing. And actually designing something that meets in the middle is incredibly difficult to do. Uh, so what we're trying to do is effectively produce recipe cards for how to do, for example, there's a recipe card on rubbish and recycling. There's a recipe card for plastic and consumables, lighting, appliances, heating, air conditioning, water, what you do in your garden, which is really important. Like there's a... I think it's something like 50% of Australia's endangered species live in suburban areas. So the plants and stuff you put in your garden are really important. And do you have a water, a um, bird bath, that type of thing? Um, goes all the way through to bike parking and car parking and how do people get to work. So where our change theory on this one is that we want to produce these recipe cards, try as hard as we can to get a wide upreach within the industry. And I feel that after a few rounds of this, so a couple of years of doing this, then the vet industry will realize what works and what doesn't. And then you can start talking about accreditation and rating systems and having a six-star clinic or a five-star clinic or something like that. So I've seen that happen with the um, the construction industry where they had Greenstar, uh, which started off, started off as this amazingly ambitious and detailed thing that covered literally everything. And you have to do like a full energy model of the building to tell it, work out how much energy to use. And you'd have to... Um, we used to try really hard to get rid of volatile organic organic compounds, which are pretty nasty things, but they're in everything. They're in paints, they're in the glue for the carpet, they're in um, all the adhesives used in a building. Um, but we'd literally get the builders to come up with a certificate for every single thing they used in the building, showing that it had zero VOC content, and then we'd give them that point to get towards their six stars. Um, and this started out in the construction industry 10 or 15 years ago, and now... A lot of what we did then is now standard practice and it's actually being legislated by government that every building there has to do this. And wow. So we're trying to, yeah, it's amazing. So like one of the most innovative, like the hardest points to get in this was to do air tightness testing, which is effectively where you put a giant, you take out the front door of the building, you put a giant fan in it and you test, you measure the air going in and you test how leaky your building is. And like residential buildings in Australia, when we design air conditioning, they might have we'd allow for the air in there to be swept out and replaced twelve times up to twelve times an hour, just because the buildings are so leaky. So like I, I design air conditioning systems, and we'd factor in like at least two to three or four air changes per hour of just air just being on a windy day, just being pushed out of the building. Not even windy, just like temperature differences of move air and buoyancy and all that type of stuff. Are these new homes, Ben? Because I live in an old house, and yeah, I I think that's very possible. Like, I mean, I, I could I can literally feel the wind blow up through the floorboards yeah. <laughs> on a stormy day. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, if you can, but, but are these the standards for new buildings as well? Well, there's no standard for new buildings. There's no wow. standard in Australia. In the UK, anyway, cold. Um, they do this by standard. Um, in Australia, we have some really really poor quality buildings. Certainly for first world country uh, so oh, wow. yeah there's nothing like if you can ever like it's it's common in australia to be able to see through the cracks in a building and see light coming through you know yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's and you think of the air conditioning defectively air conditioning outside once you have that so anyway so i was getting back to one of the credits you used to have to get this green star rating was you'd pressure test your building and then you'd have to have to actually meet this air tightness and they weren't particularly stringent by certainly European standards. But for Australia, like, this has never been done. The builders are panicking because, like, do I have to rip down all my walls and then 
gaffer tape stuff up. Like they don't know how to do it. And like, you can't blame them for that. Uh, and now that's, I think it's next year or the year after air tightness testing is being legislated as a minimum standard for some types of buildings in Australia. And that's taken less than 10 years. Yeah. So what I'm really hoping is if we roll out what are fairly, not basic, but simple, easy to follow recipe cards in the vet industry, it kicks off the thought process and the people going, oh, this is great. And once you refine it a few iterations, it starts to become standard practice. And then people are like, well, why haven't you done Vets of Climate Action's 12 months, <clears throat> 12 month hospital sustainability program? <laughs> um, and it just becomes standard practice after a while. Yeah, so it's a long, obviously it's a long-term game here that we have to play really, isn't it? And I suppose then, Ben, the, the question I have then is, like there's a lot of people who are passionate about this, but they've filmed over, feel overwhelmed by just the enormity of the process and maybe even the lack of kind of uh, steps to follow. Where's Ben's ten steps, right? But like, what, what, what do you feel? Now, or maybe what advice could you offer people who who do want to um, have uh, I don't know take some action towards this, but then not be demoralised by the the, the 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 actual journey and how long and how big it's going to take like sounds and, like and by the and by the massive feelings of guilt that, when I, <laughs> that I have by listening to Peter no. going well <laughs> I don't know it's a very complicated question so on one hand I have a real objection to the individuals the the push the individual responsibility for environmental impact for example like if I do all these amazing things if i buy green power if i sell both my cars and walk everywhere if i never fly anywhere i'll reduce my carbon emissions by i think australians emit about 18 tons per person per year um but conversely if i convince my workplace to buy green power i'll get a way bigger impact than 18 yeah or if I know someone who works at an engineering firm who's involved in the Adani mine and they, I can convince them to become an insider and tell the green groups that like my company's working on Adani and somehow that gets stopped, then I can have an impact way, way, way beyond I could ever do by riding a bike. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to a lot of environmental issues is they're so big that they're, they need policy and government level approaches. And so, again, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, like how do you actually achieve that? So, like, and it's interesting learning about how change happens. So, like, if you look at the plastic movement and how plastic bags are now banned in most states and territories of Australia, that did happen from a grassroots and people individually changing behaviour until it became the norm. But on other things like climate change, that's not possible. And, and for even if you look at, like, individual energy consumption or petrol consumption, like, there is really no alternative for individuals to reduce the amount of petrol they use without pretty major sacrifices. So there isn't really a way you're going to change that through. Yeah, do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that I've, I've I've thought the same for for a long time, and I and, and in conversations you have with people, the it does seem to be a stumbling block. And then even on a even talking on about a and I'd love your your response on that. Um, even on a national level, you speak to, I speak to Australians and they go, yeah, but, you know, on a global scale, we such a small part of the problem. Uh, we could be a perfect country and it'll make no difference. Um, I don't, and I don't know what to say to that. On the one, I don't want to say, yeah, but that's just an, an apathetic. Oh, I hate that argument. It's so hard to argue against that attitude. <laughs> I can tell you my pre-prescribed response, but I've never seen it actually. Someone go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> go for it, mate. Go for it. Well, <laughs> Australia is 1.3% of the world's emissions, um, but there's 178 countries in the world. So every country should, if it was divvied up evenly, every country would have well less than 1.3%. And we're actually, once you take out places like Brunei, um, United Arab Emirates, per person we emit more carbon than anyone else in the world. Full stop. Really? We, we are the worst. Short of the oil producing nations like Kuwait and whatnot. So we're actually like six to ten-ish on the list. Wow. Uh, for, for a real country. Um, so that's a horrible thing to say. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> for a country that isn't massively adjusted by having an oil industry, uh, we're by far uh-huh. the worst. Is that through coal or is that through just lifestyle or? It's large. Uh, it's a little bit because of our industries we run and our, ex- our 
a lot of our industries are quite carbon intensive. But if you look at the breakdown of Australia's carbon emissions, they're actually not a huge chunk of it. Not a huge chunk of it is due to that. But a lot of it is the fact that Australia hasn't had any policy for 10 or 20 years to reduce our emissions, and this is the result. Is our emissions have more or less crept up since the 90s or stayed about the same. And all the other countries are slowly creeping down as they slowly win battle after battle and reducing emissions. So, for example, since 2014, Australia's emissions have gone up every year. And that is the direct result of lack of national policy. Like, for example, yeah. I can buy a Tesla or a six-litre V8 BMW and pay the same amount of tax. Um, they're both wonderful cars, but you can see any reason why, as a government, you incentivize people to buy a Tesla because it has a lower impact on climate, mm. for example. It's probably faster, man. Electric cars are pretty fast, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, but a V8, I love a V8. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's bring it back to the to the on a, to a smaller scale and, and oh, yeah, make it sorry. Get Got distracted. No, 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 not at all. Um, I'm just on that same argument. How, where, do, where does the veterinary profession fit in terms of how bad are we compared to other other industries? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. There's been some studies done on the healthcare of Australia um, and their carbon footprint, but it's quite broad uh, and it's really difficult to actually the full. It's called a life cycle analysis where you work out exactly how much carbon was involved in producing your syringe, for example, in the vet clinic. But like. Do you include the mining for the oil that went into the plastic, that went into the pen, and then what about the cost of recycling? It's very difficult. So the way I approach it is thinking that the vet industry is probably no better or worse than any other small business, and the impact would be proportional to GDP percentage. Okay. Well, what I took from that dis discussion there, Ben, and there'd be business owners who are actually be listening to this too, including two of the people you're talking to right now, you know, it's, you know, essentially it's up to us, right? It's up to myself as a director of a, you know, a, a multi-million dollar hospital to to make the choice and go, okay, as a team, you know, what, what are options and what can we do, you know? Yeah. As to the why question, I didn't answer very well. The... The why is a couple of reasons. From a broad, from a broad perspective, the... The creating the demand and the culture around reduce, 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 reuse, recycle, for example, does create broader change. I think that's pretty well clear. And like, I don't know about you, but I can very much see in Australia that we'll go from having one recycling bin and one rubbish bin to maybe two or three types of recycling bins in 20 or 30 years' time. Because um, there's a real demand for that and people are working towards that. From a mm -hmm. business owner perspective, I feel, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but I feel this is something your customers and your staff have an appetite for. It's almost becoming a hygiene factor where yeah. if you don't have a recycling bin, people look at you like, what's wrong with you? Like, this is not up to par. And that's mm. going to change as we move forward where it's not just a recycling bin. It's like, why don't your lights, have, why don't you have LED lights? Why, aren't you, why isn't your air conditioning controlled properly? why is your garden just concrete, that type of thing, as people get more literate with these types of sustainability initiatives. So we're trying to offer something that appeals to both businesses and from an engagement perspective and also to individuals who are actually passionate about this. That's great. Yeah. That's great. And, 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 and you're right. I think, and hopefully that happens nationally and on a, on a government level as well, that eventually the demand for it or the public opinion will put pressure on on business owners and everybody else to say, well, okay, people are really, they, they need us to do something about this. So let's, let's do something about it. Otherwise therefore, as a business owner, for example, if your clients start choosing veterinary clinics based on what your environmental credentials are, then you're going to sit up and start taking notice. Well, people are already selecting where they go for headdresses, mate. So. <laughs> well, it's true though. Cause like from a person on the street, how do you choose your vet clinic? Hmm. I don't know. How do you differentiate? They're, both, they've all got lovely people and I can't judge the quality of their care. Um, it is things like this that they judge on. It's the quality of your reception and the impression, like how nice the receptionist is. But also if there's a poster in there showing the green credentials you've done, that's a really powerful marketing tool for get people to go, oh yeah, this is a really good business. Oh, I'm happy to associate my, this aligns with my personal beliefs. Mm. Oh, you got me before and that kind of um, rolled into what I was saying before. It's kind of what kind of, other level is a business going to go like 
in what kind of other thing is a business going to champion or, or try to to roll out? And for us, you know, and it's bounced around us uh, uh, within our leadership teams and director level, and even right down to the the staff members members about trying to increase our uh, our I don't know, or decrease the I don't know environmental impact as a hospital. Um, and I, and like I think it's not an it's not a hard sell for for me to say that our next um, annual meeting. It's it's now it's actually the, the 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 thing is Ben is having things like you what you said which is those little cards recipe cards for how to have a re, like how to how to change like step by step this is what you would do what you could do and so forth I think it's yeah, and just make it achievable because like if you actually want to go from having effectively not great literacy on sustainability to running to high sustainability outcomes. There's a lot to learn there. In the same way that I can't vet nurse, um, you guys probably don't understand how to size a solar panel system in the same way I do. Um, mm-hmm. And we're just trying to make a lot of that a lot simpler and a lot easier, quick to follow, and teach veterinary clinics how to do this, not on the cheap and dirty, but make it achievable because we know how busy vet clinics are and we know there's not a lot of money in the industry and we know there's a vet shortage and just trying to make that really achievable. Oh, totally. You hit you hit one of the big things, which was there's not enough money. There's not very much money in industry, and there isn't. Like some clinics are on single digit profitability, if not less, sometimes. So, you know, I've had practice yeah. owners who who run a practice um, quite low in percentages. They don't pay themselves a wage because the wage they get is because they're in the building that the building that the vet clinic pays the rent of. You know, it's they just can't afford to pay themselves a wage. So, and it's going down the the, the pathway of of business ownership, but, but more so you, you hit the point there, which is, um, and you said a couple of times during this podcast is, is how do you make it somewhat affordable or, or minimize the impact on the bottom line for a, for a company? Well, even what we're actually trying to do is make it a positive impact on the bottom line. Like mm. if this poster in your reception and your sustainability committee or whatever you end up doing, if that attracts two vets, like tell me that doesn't pay for itself. Mm. So it costs a lot of money to, if that gets your vet over line to visit your work to work for you instead of someone else. That's a pretty important thing to me. Yeah. So here's a thought. You, you mentioned time as well, and that that's a big thing. So again, I I I have the I'm in the position where I can make decisions about these sort of things in in our business. But I mean, I said, "Yep, going shit. We should be doing this." But it's another thing on my to do list. No. Um, and and possibly no, but the, this possible sol- solution for this is. To say, well, you need the the go ahead from the from the the leadership team and the management team, but but maybe get the get, for example, the nurses or, or vets or anybody in the clinic who's passionate about it to be the implementers um, and and actually run with the program for for many reasons. It's I mean, it, a it gives gives those people a an extra reason to come to work and something to be passionate about, and they're probably going to do it a better job of it because they're not worried about all the other stuff and, you know, staffing and rotating yeah. and interviews and all those sort of things. We actually, um, a few years ago, um, we had a nurse who was quite passionate about it and, and her by herself solo made some changes that, that nobody else bothered making. Uh, she's not, not there anymore. And, and unfortunately things have slipped, but, but it'd be great. I'm just imagining in our clinic, you actually create a little sub team of not necessarily the management team to say, well, this is your baby and you need to push us. And, yep. and help us implement. I'm so this. happy you said that because that's exactly what I think mm. you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you as a leader, when you hit it right in the head, you have to you have to see the vision and sell the vision to the whole. Entire I have I have to say I have to say yes. Go ahead. Well, not we only need. that, you have to actually sell it to the team, and then because otherwise, what happens is you go go ahead, and then the person you put in charge now starts making changes that all of a sudden no one really knows and really agreed upon. So. It's um, it's change management, really. It's caught as eight steps of change. The first, so we've divided into, we think we understand the size of what we're trying to achieve here. And we know it's, we're worried it's too much as it is. So we're trying to break it down into 12 months. And the very first month talks about commitment and culture. Because I've personally gone into a lot of businesses, taught them everything about sustainability. They've done everything you could do. And then the two or three champions who came along with us on the journey left the business and we're back there four years later and they're back to square one they're even using more energy because the business has grown um so it's so important that if you're going to do anything sustainability that you bring the team along with you that it becomes not a direction from the top it becomes a group goal 
And then you get people from finance going, yeah, I'll find you the 200 bucks that recycle bin. And you get all the barriers drop. And if you can't do that, then it's really difficult to implement, in my opinion. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Ben, um, this is for personal interest. You talk about recycling and how Australia is getting better at recycling and that. Then I hear such demoralizing thing about what happens with our recycling, which is, by the sounds of it, pretty much nothing at all. Um, you worked in the profession. You looked at all of that stuff. Where where does it go? Is there, yeah, have you got any, any anything to, to say on, on, on recycling in Australia specifically? Uh, I'm actually not a recycling expert, but I'd say from the perspective of, from societal change, like if you think back to the 80s, we didn't have recycling bins. That's a new thing. Mm -hmm. And we've already made huge advances. Um, I remember when I first went into Melbourne 10 years ago, all the lunches you got were in polystyrene. And now you can barely buy coffee without a keep cup. So as a country, we're definitely progressing in the right way. And what we're seeing at the moment is a short-term setback on a much towards a much better path, I feel. Okay. Mm, okay. So don't, don't cut out recycling. Don't cut out. Yeah, it's super important, and we're having a fair old hiccup at the moment. But we're going to look back at this in ten years ago and say, "Gee, that was a real." Imp I feel we're going to look back in ten years and say that was a real impetus for change. Mm. And a lot of councils stepped up and realised that this is what people are willing people are willing to pay for their rubbish recycling to be done properly. Mm. Well, actually, Ben, a, a question that actually that um, I haven't. I saw this actually as I was stalking you. Um, and that was. What did you find? I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you know that I found your second social media account. Oh, damn. <laughs> the real Ben Cox. As long as my wife doesn't find out about that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. You've got to change your name away from the real Ben Cox, man. It's pretty. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, it's cool. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obvious in hindsight. Yeah. No, but it actually says there that. Um, you are undergoing study to become a fellow of leadership in, or get a fellowship in leadership change and things. Is that, is that right? Can you explain it to me? Yeah. I've been really fortunate to um, get a fellowship with you, or two fellowships actually. One, first one with the Australian Conservation Foundation. They, um, I'm not sure if you know Australian Conservation Foundation, but they've got about six or 700,000 members in Australia. They're pretty substantially the biggest um, environmental conservation charity in Australia and they just run such a tight ship they are on top of everything their communication and their Facebook and everything is on point and maybe five years ago they did one of their strategic rethinks and they started to realize that or they decided to take a tactic of moving down the community organizing path and there's a bit of research in this field so for example the Obama campaign in 2008 um, implemented what's called the snowflake model of community organizing where it isn't in any way a top-down structure it's about person one creates a group of five and then from there they coach a leader and then that grows and it grows and it grows until all of a sudden you have thousands of people and a lot of it's actually based on some um, some very fast-growing churches in America and so the Australian Conservation Foundation knows that there's most people in Australia care about the environment, even if they don't care about it in the same way the Australian Conservation Foundation does. So, for example, let's say a Queensland Liberal voter cares a lot about the koalas down the street and they care a lot about the trees in the local park, but they may not care about the wild spaces of Tasmania or the Jabaluka uranium mine or that type of stuff. So they're not engaged with the Australian Conservation Foundation yet, even if they actually share a lot of the core beliefs of that organisation. So Australian Conservation Foundation is running community groups. And if you're passionate about these, I highly encourage you to join. I've joined one as well. I've joined one already. They're really good. Um, you meet some wonderful, lovely people. You learn a lot um, and you get to campaign against things that are pretty important to me. Well, yeah. probably pretty important to you as well. So Australian Conservation Foundation, they run a fellowship for a dozen or two dozen people every six months uh, where you join their team of paid staff to, or to basically manage their community groups. And so they work pretty hard on it. I'm like, so I'm running a community. I'm, sorry, I'm looking after the community groups that are working climate at the moment because that's obviously my passion. Uh, and they work pretty hard. On, I'm not a boss. I don't tell them what to do. It's not a top-down thing. I'm a coach. I'm a facilitator. I 
help the community organizers reflect on what they're doing and make suggestions and help them to realize what the best path forward is because a lot of these people may not have experience in doing what they're doing. Uh, and yeah, effectively they offer a fellowship where I work for them for two, day to, two days a week for free for the next six months and I, they get assistance from me and I get to learn how to effectively run community organizing sessions. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. That's actually the third thing we're trying to do in Vets for Climate Action is set up local impact groups where it's a team of five or it's a team of 10 people who are passionate about what we're doing. And we teach them about how to have these conversations that we're talking about with climate. Like, how do you talk to Uncle Joe who says, well, you, you can't power the economy without coal? That type mm. of thing. Mm. like what language works and how do you do that and that type of thing. Um, we're also pretty active in the media at the moment. Um, we've got a, a need to update it tomorrow. We've got a bunch of articles in various media outlets talk, linking climate change to fires and linking climate change to impact on animals. Uh, and we want to teach people how to do that because it's both difficult but also quite easy once you get the hang of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting. And the, um, and the second fellowship is a group called Progress Australia who are a fairly left-leaning organisation and they work to train leaders in the, um, the causes they believe in. So it's funded by unions. Australian Conservation Foundation is actually also a funder and there's a few other groups like that. Um, and it's quite high-level change theory. It does things like explains how come now I believe in LGBTI rights when but when I was 15, I didn't, um, these type of things. So not that I didn't, but I would, had no awareness of it back when I was 15. Like, how does that social change happen? Mm. And teaching us how to do, effectively, how to create the change that we want to see in the world. It's really interesting, actually. It's something I haven't been exposed to as an engineer. And mm. understanding, like, yeah, like, how come my views on X, Y, Z have changed over time? Like, what's caused that? Because that hasn't been accidental. That's been the result of a bunch of activists working year after year after year. And now, all of a sudden, it's an outrage that people can and can't marry. I never had that opinion 10 years ago. Um, mm. I can't speak for you, too, but you might have been similar. And if you weren't, then maybe your parents were. Oh, mate, you could consider where I'm from. Consider the changes from being born into 1970s South Africa. With okay. a Good point. Very... So I'm often astounded to, to to go ahead. I'm often embarrassed about the stuff that I used to believe and 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 the way we used to think. When it's and other than than the obvious racial issues in South Africa, there was we're such a conservative society um, and all these sort of things you mentioned. It was unth unthinkable when I was even a teenager, and now I look back at it and, and and I've never actually thought about why 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 the change. It's a very good point. I'd I'd love to explore that. Yeah, it's fascinating, and there's a. It seems to me to be in its infancy, but there's certainly a it's a profession of understanding this and working what tools to utilize and when to utilize, utilize them and how best to achieve the change you're trying to achieve. It's fascinating. Wow. This is by far the, I don't know, the most non-vet related conversation <laughs> on the vet, but also one that seems like totally I'm engaged in. I'm not saying I wouldn't be engaged in it, mate, but it's like I'm you know, like, yeah, that, like because it's such on topics that are, that I'm passionate about, climate change and also change management and leadership and like like all that kind of things as well. So really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing and, and and talking about. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I enjoy the opportunity. The other thing what I did in the color is that one of the main reasons people don't act on climate change is a lack of seeing options and solutions, and so. For, like just for you two, from my perspective, as an engineer, if we just look at the problem from it, like how do we actually solve Australia's emissions? A big chunk of our emissions are through um, coal burning and gas burning for power generation. And it's not like solar and wind are a new technology. And it's well understood how we would go to 100% renewable energies in Australia. And not only that, but when you put in solar plants, you have to oversize them so that even when, so when you put in solar and wind, you have to oversize them so that even on a not particularly windy day, you still have enough power for the whole grid. What that also means on a windy, sunny day, you generate way more power than you need. There's actually too much and they have to shut stuff off. 
which makes a lot of sense. But it also means the price of electricity drops through the floor. And there's a lot of economists like Ross Garno, who's a really prominent economist, and he's saying, well, hang on a minute. At the moment, all of our iron ore gets processed in China because of cheap labor. But in 30 years' time, if we pursue this renewable path, we're going to have cheaper electricity than China just because we have so much space and so much wind and so much sun. And that gives Australia huge economic opportunities. So one of the messages we're trying to push is that climate change isn't a bad thing. And the technologies that are emerging that are going to fix climate change also have huge economic opportunities for Australia. Um, and, yeah, so when you guys are like, oh, I need to do more, it's actually, we just need to, what we're actually chasing is a better world. And it's not like a, we're trying to avoid a bad thing, we're actually chasing a good thing, if that makes any sense. So I think it's very important, like, I didn't do a good job of that tonight, but, and I need to learn from that, but one of the things in climate change is it's really important that actually we're chasing a better world and why aren't we doing it earlier? What I, what I like about what you're saying is I think for for lots of, well, certainly for me and I, and I think for lots of people, you do care, but it is such an overwhelming problem that that it, that it almost paralyzes you and you just go, well, I, I don't know what to do about it, so I, I'll just do nothing. Can I make a suggestion? Uh, Can you join, join bets for climate action? That will help you. <laughs> 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 that's, not a, that's, not a, that's not a plug for anything. <laughs> no, 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 unrelated. <laughs> okay, but, but tell, tell us about that. Tell us about that. So, yeah, so, so how do you get involved? Uh, so we're young. We only founded, like, I think we had our first meeting that was minuted on the 30th of September. So we're, we're pretty brand new. We um, are hoping tomorrow we get the final fundraising license so we can actually go out and raise some money. Um, legally uh, <laughs> so <laughs> effectively join jets join vets for climate action uh you it's a membership fee to join it's a monthly membership fee you can pay what you want but we set a minimum number for vets and a minimum number for vet nurses the vet nurses are a bit lower because we know they do it pretty tough um mm -hmm. and the students effectively get in for next to nothing uh and then what happens after that um we invite you to join some of our impact groups so some people will be able to have the time and the willingness to form some of these groups um to spend a lot of time and other people might be more of a passive involvement uh, mm -hmm. but effectively that gives them the opportunity to speak out on climate so we see a pretty direct so the whole base of that organization is because we see a really direct link between climate change and impacts on animals bushfires like i don't need to explain that one that is such an obvious one and the impacts like i'm doing animals that's is that even a number like <laughs> like i'm a numbers guy and like it's not actually possible to talk about that and like i see a lot of veterinarians doing some fantastic on the ground work to address that crisis but we're only at one degree warming and like i said we're on track for two at the moment from what i can tell we're on track for more than three and what's the bushfire weather going to be when we get to more than three degrees so Jeez. this is kind of like in my opinion and i can't speak for the veterinary industry but if i was a vet wanting to do something about the horrors of the bushfire i'd probably be spending my energy talking to people about climate change and we think vets uh and sorry vet nurses probably even more than vets but the industry as a whole they have such an authenticity when they talk if you get someone standing there with a koala one, it opens a conversation, but it opens a compassion and an emotional response in the people you're talking to. And when you're talking about animals, you have such authenticity. So if we can teach vets to talk about animals and the impacts of climate change, I think we can really contribute to the national conversation and move people to that from the deniers to the alarm side, and that's when they start to vote along these lines. So, for example, I don't think there's much talk at all in the media or in the population about climate change is going to impact wildlife or agriculture. Like six months ago, I didn't know about it. I thought, oh yeah, well, I know the Great Barrier is disappearing, but impact on platypuses, no idea. No one knows about this. But actually, the drying of Australia is going to have a real impact on the water flows in the rivers and the platypuses are at real risk of going to be an endangered species or a threatened species. Vets need to tell that story. Um, that's the type of information that people go, oh, that's an iconic animal. We should do something about that. That now impacts me um, in a way that climate change historically hasn't impacted people individually. They care about animals. And so we're really, we have such 
well, I don't, but veterinarians and vet nurses have such power to tell this story and, and get attention and move people. Um, mm. And that's why we founded. So, where, where, where do people find you? Where do we find out more about uh, you? So, we're at vfca.org.au, which stands for Vets for Climate Action. Um, we've also got a Facebook page. And we so, yeah. say that the, the, the website again. It's vfca.org.au, which stands for vetsforclimateaction.org.au. The other thing we're doing at the moment is we're working to hold a vigil for the animals in Sydney. We've got a lot of feedback from people both within the veterinary industry and without that there's a huge amount of grief at the moment about particularly about the bushfires and the billion animals and the images of the koalas and the native animals being burnt alive um it's a really it's a really horrific thing and it's quite immobilizing and we need to recognize that mental health is a so prioritizing the mental health of everyone in our industry is really important uh, we we know that we've learned that lesson or we've seen the impact of that and so we're holding a vigil for the animals. Um, we haven't got a date set as of now, but it's looking to be, I think, either the 1st or the 8th of March. Uh, we'd encourage everyone to attend. It'll be a little bit sober as these events are. It's definitely not a protest. Um, but what we're trying to get out is give people an opportunity to grieve. And then it's really important that we also pass on the opportunity to hope the solutions to climate change and the solutions to bushfires do exist. We're not doing them yet, um, but they're not massive steps, and we really want to pass on that message. And help people's mental health fundamentally so will the um once you have dates on that ben will that be on your website or where can where can people yes find it'll be on our website and also on our facebook page with okay. the event sitting there ready to be published as soon as we get the dates confirmed with sydney and and based on the conversation it's obviously very australia focused um is it open to internet we have a fair amount of international listeners about about half of our listeners are from outside of australia they uh, can they get involved or if not with you are there other similar organizations internationally that you're aware of uh as far as i can tell there's no other organizations anywhere else in the world that are talking just climate and the veterinary industry there are obviously a whole bunch of sustainability or conservation groups associated with the vet industry. For example, we have our um, AVA SIGs. A couple of those are quite interested in conservation. Uh, there's a group called Vet Sustain in the UK run by a lady called Laura, we've been speaking to on and off. Um, and she's creating quite a lot of um, quite a lot of momentum in the UK industry to do something about general sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, but as far as I can tell, we're the first to really prove Share a proof of concept of this. Okay, so, and, can, and, and can our international listeners join? Join, or is it? Uh, is it... They can join, but there's fairly there's practical implications of what we can ah. can't do. That like we're trying to focus on the Australian market because, like I said, Australia is a real political outlier in the world when it comes to climate action, um, mm -hmm. and we think there's a lot of work to be done in this market, particularly. We, that said, we're absolutely keen to talk to anyone who looks, wants to set up a lot of what we've done internationally particularly if you're in america mm. because america again no one's talking about animals and climate change over there either mm. certainly not in the way that vets can yeah <laughs> i love it Gerardo? dude I, I thought that was an awesome kind of conclusion to the to the to the podcast um i don't have much more really i think that was a really powerful message and also and i totally agree with what you're saying there, it's about the nurses because, to be honest, the people who are speaking the loudest in my hospital are the 70 nurses um, around the recycling bin, right? And, yeah. and as a business owner, like, I, I know that the next phase of us is having something that we champion. What are we, what are we championing? Uh, what, what is our hospital going to champion? Is it going to be ending slavery or something, you know, or is it going to be we're like, what is it like a public thing that's going to, you know, bind us together. It's, it's, it has to be the next level is more than just having a team that works together, more than just having wanting the common outcome of, of, of treating pets. There has to be another level of a common cause. And, and like, I think this is it for us. So I didn't even know you had, I didn't even know you had slavery in your hospital. Oh, no, Rick, you come over and work with us, Stuart. Then you'd be the first one. <laughs> how, do you, how do you do it? How do you get away with it? How do you do it? <laughs> called vet students, mate. But I mean, that. Yeah, yeah. we love our vet students and they really 
totally <laughs> appreciate when they come and spend time with us. So, you know, they keep us on our toes. Sorry, that's yeah. for sure. They ask us questions like, oh, yeah, shit, absolutely. I got to remember that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, ben, ben doesn't get away without the short questions, I think, just because oh, he's not a... I should have probably told you about it. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, ben, I always ask uh, our listeners, uh, if they are podcast listeners, to give us a couple of podcast recommendations that we should that we should put on our on our playlist. Uh, I'm normally not a podcast listener, but the, um, the agent, Sydney Morning Herald, has started doing short explainers on local topics, or sorry, topics in the news recently, just a little two or three or four part series. I've found them really informative and they get some very intelligent and well-informed people to interview on that. They're only five or ten minutes, um, but cool. I'd, I'd recommend that. And you are allowed to default to books if you're not a podcast listener. Uh that does not have to be climate related. Yeah, but I was going to say, I've been can be. yeah, neck deep in climate and change theory books at the moment. Um, I'd have to look some up. But if you're interested in the science behind climate change, there's a fascinating book called, oh, it's by Emily Colbert called Field Notes of a Catastrophe. And it's got a very alarmist title, but all she does is she goes around and interviews people who are working on climate science. That's it. Um, she tells it in a very story-like manner. It's fascinating. It's actually what I read 12 months ago and opened my eyes to a lot of the impacts and it's what moved me from being uh, climate change that's bad to actually, oh, this is so bad that I actually need to, I'm willing to change my career and throw away my engineering degree um, and go do something else in it. But it's also just an interesting read for those who are science-minded. Okay, sounds great. And then this one, we can, let's try this on. Uh, coming from, from, from your... Um, from your field of expertise, we, we normally end the podcast with a question that says you are at a conference somewhere and the world's new graduate veterinarians are listening to you speak and you have a couple of minutes to give them one message. Uh, what what would Ben Cox tell them? Uh, uh, I went to my fellowship training on the weekend and there was a lady there who's a mother, or she's a young mother of three, her oldest kids, the youngest kids too, sorry. And she was explaining why she's joined a fellowship and she said she's looking at her children and she says in 30 years time they're going to ask me what did I do uh, I'd say the same of anyone of any age um, look after yourself follow your own goals but also what did I do to make the world a better place You just chop, 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 chop. Yeah, just give me more work. I don't mind, Gerardo. <laughs> okay, let me see where we're at with the podcast. We are at, you know, Steve. Yeah, just leave it in then completely. Uh, you know what? Well, I'm going to talk complete crap now for like five minutes. You're going to have to listen to this. Chop it out, and there's more work for you, mate. I want to see if I can get a feature on the on my editing software that just chops out Gerardo's bullshit, like a bullshit. <laughs> hit a button and it chops it all. Oh, <laughs> like, can't be far away from that.